Welcome to the Burlap Podcast. My name is Chris Formsby. I'm the president of Burlap, and I'm here with co-host Chris Abel. We hosted a few um, hundred people a couple weeks ago. Uh, we had about 150 people specifically for a dinner we hosted, Burlap. Uh, hosted it and uh, just cared for and, and sort of tried to um, get to know about 150 leaders from all over the country. And we ate a ton of pasta. We had a ton of pasta. It was a great time. I don't actually eat pasta. I had the salad, though. And uh, so we have discovered uh, that uh, most of the issues related that we can see related to reaching millennials and Gen Z, reaching emerging generations through church, is not just about what programs will do or what uh, budgets need, what budget needs there are or whatever. It really comes down to the fact that there's an overall cultural change that needs to take place in the church. Wait a minute. That's a big idea. Are you sure? Because I was under the assumption you just needed like a yeah, Z in your you name just, somewhere. Like, yeah, you just trendy, ne- trendy name, right? the right clothes. Flip the a right, letter yeah, the other way. Right. Skinnier really jeans. Need. That's it. That's it. Coffee. And- but committed leadership takes um, really just a... a I mean, overall, I would say that committed leadership to reaching emerging generations is so much more than what we superficially sometimes slap on it. And that may be unfair to say, because I know not every church is doing it that way, but, you know, you know, the styles of music and the things we wear and the coffee that we serve in the narthex or in the commons or the vestibule, if you're still one of those old school churches that calls it that. But those are good things. Those are helpful. But really, an overall cultural change needs to take place. And that's a long, long road. I mean, it does not happen overnight because most places that I've ever engaged in has a story already at work when I enter into that place. And every community faith community I've ever been a part of has a story. And that story has been shaped by decades, usually, of people's uh, living, trying to live together, and it creates this culture that may, in fact, need to change. And that's hard. Uh, It's definitely uh, one of the things that I think a lot of leaders look to maybe last uh, or down the list, to say it kind of nicely, a little nicer. And the reality is, it probably is the first thing we should look at. So, what tips do you have? Chris? Well, first of all, you know, this is, a, we're talking about tr- creating culture change, and that's hard. And it, it, like you said, it's not the first thing people jump to immediately. I mean, some, some people might, but I think when you go into ministry, like, especially if you've just come out of seminary or you've been, in, you've been doing this job for decades, you know that worship needs to happen. It comes every week. Right, a lot. A lot of you listening are in charge of this. You've got priorities that take up a lot of your time every week. You've got people who are pestering you, or you know, air quotes here, like you know, looking for your time. You know, Absolutely. maybe pester is too strong of a word. Sometimes it's pestering. I think. Yeah, we we can say that. We can be honest. Yeah, and. It just it means that the the bigger stuff, the bigger vision, um, looking from the ten thousand uh, foot view, like we just a lot of us don't have time to do it. So we we understand like when we're talking about this idea of creating cultural change, this is challenging. It's not urgent. I heard once a pastor say there's a difference between urgent and uh, important. That there's a lot of urgent stuff that's not important. And that important needs to push urgent aside. You know, you need to make space for important. And so I don't think I'm even getting those words right, but you get the idea, right? Not really. Okay. Because so urgent, urgent is like the stuff that's like, oh, the bulletin's not printing right. Oh, like urgent is oh, like well, the coffee are, needs to, okay. oh, so-and-so's well, mad. If you oh, define another... urgent that way, then I see that's kind of more crisis or, yeah. you know, short-term crisis. Than, and when I think of urgency, I think of 
like what matters the most like what is important why do we have a sense of urgency for this like i don't i guess you should be urgent about the right things i mean yeah i mean urgency to me is the reason to like buckle up and go for the journey like what's the point so maybe i guess it's all in the definition of urgent or in the application of of it if you will as people try to live it out but urgency is important because i think when you create a sense of urgency other people start to see in the culture in the community other people start to see why this whatever the necessary change is 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 important because if it isn't urgent well what's the point like urgency means if we don't get to it now then we'll be farther away later yeah i mean so for me so maybe you it got goes, the words backwards or mixed up or whatever no, I, goes, I wasn't following I, you yeah maybe no. maybe I'll, that's I'll, what he meant i don't can find the, the original phrase i think you just you're made, just too I smart just, for this i just think you made that up i don't even think there really <laughs> was a pastor who ever said that to you <laughs> um i made it up no it's yeah. actually out there um but yeah i think the idea is like the idea of urgent though i think people make decisions it's like reactionary versus proactive like a lot of us are do, making re- reactionary decisions with our time each day instead of proactive decisions with our time, you know? Yeah. I think that's kind of the idea behind it. So, but I'm with you. So what we're, what we're talking about today is, is this culture change and there's a, there's a lot to it. And I think we either it falls off our plate. We don't really realize that it needs to happen or we realize it needs to happen, but there's other stuff that take up our time. And, and sometimes so, I think we're in positions where we don't think we're the ones to make the change, right? right. So like we're in a position where, you know, we don't we don't feel like or think that we have the authority or the influence to make the change. And so we don't try to make the change when really I think some of the most important change we can make is what we would call change that goes sort of upline, like the way that yeah. uh, an associate pastor or a ministry director or someone who's not, quote unquote, in charge has to create change and lead up with that change. And that's where urgency, I think, is important because it starts to tell the narrative to the people who... Uh, you would quote unquote report to, or maybe that's not always the right language to use in terms of a uh, organizational structure. But I think those are the people who go, I don't really, this isn't my problem. And that is a problem. When you start thinking, this isn't my problem. This is somebody else's problem. The senior pastor, the board chairman, church council chair, whoever that is. It's right. like, no, this is everyone's problem if it's truly a community. Two things. I had a conversation with our executive director. Now, if you're just listening to this, we work for a pretty large church. We've got hundreds of staff. Uh, when I first got here, I sat down with our executive director, maybe a couple months into my job, and I, I made a comment about how, well, I don't really have the influence that you do. And he said, well, you know, we have different kinds of influence. When it comes from the boss up top, it doesn't quite work the same way as from somebody who's like in the trenches alongside. He said, you have more influence with your coworkers than you realize that you have, that I don't actually have that kind of influence. And I thought that was really eye-opening. The second thing um, is that we actually had a model of this in the last year here at our church, at Church of the Resurrection. And that happened to be with our, we had a 9.15 a.m. worship service, or it was 9 a.m. at the time. We moved our times a little bit. But we had this worship service that was like blended. It was half contemporary, half, uh, you know, traditional. And there were some people who loved it. There were some people who loved it. But we just saw when we evaluated that, you know, numbers were kind of dropping. And uh, we had a vision for a different kind of worship service that was going to reach younger people. What happened is the service kept aging and it kept shrinking. And so we realized we needed to make change. And so we're going to share a little bit. I think we've got four steps here of implementing change. But just know that this isn't just... 
Uh, it doesn't matter how big or small your church is, these steps are true no matter where you are. Uh, and how big the change is, right. not just the size of the church, but how monumental is the change. It doesn't have to be some massive thing to have, in this case, four steps to follow. It could be something much simpler or much smaller than what we originally think needs change. But I think we still need a process or a, a framework. That's why I think these four things are helpful. So I want to follow up at the end of these four steps with how we implemented change at our church. But then, uh, like, let's just get into these. So the first one we have here, uh, do you want to start us off? Yeah, just in terms of evaluating or assessing the culture. And this is huge, right? I mean, like like I was saying a minute ago, every single place has a story. And what's the story that your community is telling? What's the story that your culture is, is telling? And I think when you begin to evaluate and assess that culture, and really, I mean, I think uh, John Cotter in his book, Leading Change, says you identify reality and you verify assumptions. And sometimes we walk into stories or we walk into uh, the narrative that's already being told with sort of our own assumptions of, well, this is what this means, or that must mean this. or And really, it's kind of, uh, who was it the other day we had? Oh, we had uh, Dr. Miroslav Wolf uh, from Yale Divinity School on our campus lecturing on a couple of his books. And he mentioned this whole idea of non-understanding before we even get to understanding. Do you remember this, Chris, when he was yeah. talking about probably the best thing we can do is just drop all of our assumptions about what we think about another culture or a, another person or and instead of assuming we think we know everything the best step is non-understanding which is tell me who you are tell me about yourself tell me as a you, you know whether that's a, a race or whether that's a gender or whatever we're trying to understand the first step is non-understanding i think this concept of non-understanding help is helpful in assessing culture because we start to say, okay, I think I know about this already and I've made these assumptions, but really what I need to do is get rid of these assumptions and really start listening well and hearing this story and then identifying the realities of this culture. Uh, who's in charge? Who has influence? Who doesn't have influence? Why do they have influence? Why is the church grown? Why is the church shrunk? You know, what are all of these things? Why is the leader uh, been uh, stagnant for five years or whatever the case may be. All of these things kind of help us formulate our understanding of culture and assessing and evaluating that culture and saying, okay, if we were to change, now at least we know what to springboard off from. And I think sometimes we want to make change. We want to make all this change and we got to reach this or we got to do this. We got to create this new thing or whatever it is we're trying to do. And we really haven't done the hard work of assessing the culture enough to say, well, if we were to change, who, what would we be changing away from? Uh, on that note, you know, I'm preparing right now to send out an, uh, an email survey to all the uh, young adults in our in our database of just kind of real because I've realized like I've operated in ministry. My default is to skip the evaluate step and just jump straight into try to change things. Right. And so, I mean, I've talked about that before on the podcast, and I think that's more of like an excitement. You know, you can you can have projects. It can be fun to change things, but you know, our goals, especially if you're a pastor listening to this or even a leader. Um, in any capacity is there's a certain amount of shepherding that happens. Like this isn't just about your goals. Sometimes I think we make an idol out of success that we want to be in charge of the thing that's doing really well. But at the end of the day, like we're stewarding human lives and is that change can be really painful to people and realize it. And it also can be really frustrating when people resist the thing we're trying to do to help them. Right. If any of you have like family or friends who have, um, 
you know, addictions or problems that they keep finding themselves or attitudes that they keep finding themselves kind of trapped in. And you just want to be like, hey, if you only could do this, if only I could be in charge of your life for a second, I could help you out with that problem. Well, you're not in charge of their life, right? You, it's, this is the challenge of being in a relationship of any, whether it's a family or a church community, is you have to figure out ways of listening where people are actually at before you try to control them or help them. And so that's just something I think there's a, there's a spirit of, uh, of listening too. It's not just like, all right, this is the first checklist is like, we need to assess and evaluate. And it's like, no, you need to also understand and care for, even if that caring might be. So how does your, sur- how is your survey going to do that then? Oh, my surveys, well, I'm going to like have them plug in through the matrix. No, I'm just, I'm just being silly. No, I'm gonna, no, but I mean, my survey is not going to do that. I mean, but what, what is, I mean, what are the goals of the survey? So you want to assess you want to assess the culture because you feel it's in your time here, which has been over a year that you skip some steps. And now you're going back to the sort of quote unquote, the beginning. And you're saying, I need to understand culturally how these young adults feel about this, this community. So then the goals of it are of this survey are, are to what then what's after that? What's after the assessment? So we're specifically looking at the young adults who are in our database, which means they've come at one point or they might still be coming. We're looking at life stages. So are you a student? Are you uh, a young professional? Are you married and have kids? Or are you just married? You know, like what stage of life? And then we're looking at what things are you attracted to? So we're, what we're trying to pull out is what things are people looking for in the different life stages in our community? So that's more specific. Okay. So it was, I'm just, it's more of like a listening step yeah. than entirely evaluating the, yeah. the community. No, but I think that's important. And there's micro cultures within the culture, oh, right? Yeah. So like, oh, yeah. while we may not be able to change the culture of the entire, you know, organization or church in this case, what we may be able to ch- start change with is the microculture that we do have influence or leadership over. And I think that's precisely what you're trying to do with that survey. So can I read what, a quote? Real yeah, quick? read the quote and then let's okay. jump to the second uh, step in this. This is just kind of a subset here. When you're evaluating and assessing, it can be really easy to get frustrated or bitter to, cr- to criticize instead of critique. And there's just this quote that has just haunted me since seminary when I first read it. It's from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and it's from his book, Life Together. And I'm just going to take a second to read this. Pastors should not complain about their congregation, certainly never to other people, but also not to God. Congregations have not been entrusted to them in order that they should become accusers of their congregations before God and their fellow human beings. When pastors lose faith in a Christian community in which they have been placed and begin to make accusations against it, they had better examine themselves first to see whether the underlying problem is not their own idealized image, which should be shattered by God. Whoa. Woo. Yeah. That's so powerful. There's a difference between under- understanding change needs to happen and trying to use a community or not appreciate a community or love a community and guide them to change. So I think that's part of the evaluation yeah. step there is not to grow bitter about the obstacles in front of you. Right. So why change, right? Like what's the point? And, and I think sometimes we can have a dream for a culture or a community that's maybe not the actual best dream for that community. And so we manipulate that change or we want to make that change happen at, at the expense of all that comes with that community. And pastors maybe need to best look at serving that community first and maybe only and is, instead of saying, well, I like you, but I'd like you better if you were like this. Yeah. And I see that happen sometimes with parenting. I see parents who sometimes have kids that like just turned out perfect and some parents who have kids that are like really in troubled states. Who are these parents with perfect kids? I'm trying to find them. <laughs> man, my kids, I love them to death, but it's 
it's it's hard, man. You talk about changing culture. Try to change your family culture, man. That's a different podcast for a different day. But gosh, I'm right in the middle of that, man. Wow, huge. Well, anyway, if you want, we can pause so, this, do some so, personal counseling. Yeah, please. Let me break down here. <laughs> All Eva- right. Second evaluate. Step. Number one, evaluate and assess. Number two is what? Communicate message of change. Uh, man, this one is tricky because you, this is not necessarily one-time sermon. Oh, here's my idea for change. Now let's implement it, right? And it's not as easy as just having a vision statement. I know that a lot of churches are really big fans of you know painting the strategy or the vision mission statement up on the walls or something. It's not just coming up with a vision or mission statement. Yeah, we, I think churches, I think all organizations, but since we're, most of our passion is spent trying to help churches, I think it's easy to recognize churches that develop a purpose statement or a message of change, if you will, and they are more committed to how the wording is on the message than the application of seeing that become a reality. So much time has been spent in meetings, hours upon hours upon hours, wordsmithing a sentence that's going to go on a bulletin or going to go on the wall somewhere or go on a, a meeting agenda or whatever it might be. And those that's not to say that's not helpful because if you don't have sort of a direction you're going in, then you just, then it's just chaos. So I get why people put this sentence and say, you know, for our church, it's we're uh, building a Christian community where non-religious and nominally religious people are becoming deeply committed Christians. I know that by heart. Most of the people on my team know that by heart. It's our, it's our, it's our guiding principle. It's like what we stand for. It's who we want to be as a church. But inside of that message of, 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 of purpose, it's rooted in God's mission to restore the world towards its intended wholeness, which is a bigger sort of, uh, well, mission than just our specific local church's impact or um, what's the word I'm looking for, um, uh, commitment to that mission. And I just think when, you, when if you're going to move away from that or move within that, it's, it's helpful to say, well, then how, what kind of a message are we communicating? You were talking earlier about the difference between criticism and critiquing something. Why don't you touch on that? Because a lot of what happens after someone assesses, at least from what I've seen, my own experience working in churches over the last 20 years is when you identify what needs to be changed and the micro or the macro level, sometimes people get super, um, cynical even, but definitely they lean towards criticism instead of just critique. What's the difference and how do you go about making sure you're not leaning more towards that criticism that kind of cuts and sort of stings than you are just being critical? It's the same, I mean, it's the same mentality that happens when you have like a family dispute, right? If you have, they say the Gottman Institute has done a bunch of research with marriages, for instance, and they say that, you know, one of the signs of a healthy marriage is the ability to, you know, have uh, like healthy communication and that when there's a problem, you don't have stonewalling, right? Which is just like somebody just shuts you down. They just won't engage in the actual uh, conversation. And that sometimes as leaders, what happens is we know we need to communicate change and, uh, we do it in such a way that, you know, we, 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 we're too personally attached to it. You know, like when people are resisting change, it's not because, you know, they're against you. I mean, that might occasionally happen, but it's because they have other things going on. So then as you're communicating, you need to name things, not to, uh, not to criticize, but just to kind of help. Right? A lot of what we are trying to do with the culture of churches is not work against the congregation, but to help them. Right? Those are very different spirits. It, kind of, it goes back to, I was thinking too, it goes back to um, what you were saying earlier. 
about urgency and how we need to help people understand that what the decisions we make right in front of us right now actually matter. Uh, so I think that's definitely part of the, the idea of communicating a message of change. One of the things I've learned with communicating a message of change came from some great advice I got from a, a business leader in our community who was serving on one of our leadership teams at this church I was serving in Minnesota. And, um, you know, I was complaining because people weren't uh, committing to the change with me. And he said, the communications of your message sucks. He's like, it's not inspiring enough. And it really doesn't do anything except explain what we've done wrong. It doesn't help us go where we need. It doesn't help us get to where we need to go. Somebody, so, somebody so, said that to you? Oh, yeah, man. I've had some great advice over the years. That was a good piece. It's like, why don't you create something compelling enough in this communication of this message of change that people would actually want to do the hard work and go through the pain of changing to, to get there? And sometimes I think we look at it and go, well, these people, they just don't want to change, when really we should be looking in the mirror and going, well, is our vision for change even compelling enough? Like, who would do this with me and why? And that's, I think, after you've evaluated and assessed the culture and become familiar with the story that that community is telling, and that's obviously a key piece is knowing how to communicate that message of change in such a way that's going to propel or compel people to to be a part of it. And and then that's the third step, right, is like, I got to go find these people to help me. This, um, again, uh, Cotter in his book, Leading Change, calls it this guiding coalition or this, who are the people that I'm going to bring on board to help me accomplish this, that are going to help me move towards wherever it is we decide to go. Yeah, you can't do this alone, right? You are not the only person who has to carry the mantle of this message of change. And if you can't find somebody to help you, it maybe like it goes back to what my friend told me, your message is just bad. It's just not inspiring. Or maybe it's like the wrong time to try to set out to make the change. Right. You know? But you do need, so that's the third step that we're suggesting here is create a team, a coalition, people who are bought in, who understand this. Uh, I got together for our, at least our young adult ministry, we I got together a leadership team. And I, one of the things I told them was, part of the message was, I need you to put on your leader lenses. And so I drew these glasses on the board. And I said, everything that we do, I kind of put our mission statement on the board, everything we need, everything we plan, everything we execute, everything we do needs to look through these lenses of how do we reach new people and we, how do we help them grow in relationship with God? Well, Those let's talk. The two. The, yeah, that's great. Let's go back to that 915 service for a minute because yeah. I think we skipped that communication on the second step. So we, talk, we did talk about evaluating that particular service in the culture there. But then how did, what was the, the communication or the message of change and, and to those folks and then get into the team of people that need, were required to make that change? Part of evaluating was, was also listening in there. So just going back even further, what we did is we had um, the band that we wanted to come in. for the, So we, we had them come in and do a different style of worship. And then we actually, at the end of service, we did a poll. Or in the middle of service, we did a poll of people. And they actually had these handouts and they checked what, um, how they felt about it. And it ranged from, I would leave this service if this is what it changed to. And it went all the way towards, I love this. And then in the middle was somewhere where it said, it's not my style, but if it means reaching new people, um, I'm fine with it. And so what we had is 85% of people were somewhere on the positive side of things. And then what ended up happening is uh, we had to address it. So our senior pastor, Adam Hamilton, he came out for this one particular service, and he basically said, hey, listen, if we keep going this way, what's going to happen is in 20 years, 
the average age of this service will be 75. And we will, this, then what's going to happen shortly after that is we will die and the service will die with it. And, uh, I'm, you know, he basically said, we literally, we cannot do that. Like, yes, your preferences are important to us, but the way things go mean that we're just going to, this is not about just us. And that if we want to keep the service alive, if we want to keep our congregation alive, we have to continue making changes so that we reach other people and younger families and people who are looking for, you know, a relationship with Christ. And that's not just about us. And he, right. he painted this compelling picture of, you know, we, I understand that you have your preferences, but we have to make these. We have to. We have to look at this in a different way. Because I'm not changing just to change to upset you. He said I'm changing because we have to. He painted that sense of urgency. Yeah. So it was part of the communication there. And then after that, we implemented it probably a couple of weeks or months later. And how, there was some how still... was the team engaged? Like that's what. Like if step so, three is the guiding coalition, then or team, like or the people that are going to help you. Like was that team a diverse group of people? Was it? Uh, a paid staff, a volunteer staff, a combination? Like, who were the people that were making that change? So this service didn't just get new music. It got new pastors. It got new congregational care ministers. It was the merging of two different services. So to spell it out a little bit, we had a kind of a video venue cool service that merged into this 9 a.m. service and it kind of took over the style a little bit. And so there was like there were people who were threatened by it. There were people in the night, the other service that really liked the style they had and didn't want to merge in. And so you had communication across the board. We met with tons of people. We had little small group things. We had polls. We had uh, so it was staff people and leaders who we equipped to basically say, hey, when these conversations happen, uh, do us a favor. We know people are going to be upset, but please try to share the vision that we have that we're trying to do this to help reach more people. And so what I did is I told a lot of the the congregation, the smaller congregation that was merging in with the high energy, I said, consider yourself as missionaries. You're going as missionaries into this new service, and it's not going to be exactly how you like either. And we're doing it because the culture that we have is so important that we need to help be contagious and bring energy into that service. Yeah. So then, okay. So evaluate and assess, number one. Number two, communicate a message of change and how we communicate that is really important, right? Critical or criticism. Create a team, find the people that this, this, this can be a coalition to help you um, implement the change. And then you got to figure out, well, what are the steps, the intentional steps, number four, to implement that change? So you had some, you had some significant steps that you, were, that you took into nine, to the 915 now service. Uh, what you mentioned some of those about new pastors and just new music styles. And, but are there any other steps that you took? as a team of people to go, okay, in order to get from where we are now to where we need to go, these are some steps that we need to take. Just two or three of them. We don't need a ton of them. Just to give our listeners a way to understand, like, what do we mean by intentional steps? This is actually the fun part, right? Like, people love this part. How do we just actually just execute things? And when I say the fun part, I mean for some of us, right? Like, I tend to fall in the act too soon, move things too fast. Um, I think other people, I've seen communities, I was talking to someone from uh, another denomination in this area, they're thinking about a church plant, and they've taken years, years of committee meetings planning on how they're going to do this. And at some point, guys, you can't just keep meeting about this stuff. You need to actually do it. Like, there is a point where you have to just do it. Um, we're kind of, it is a line, though, right? You can't just come in and then just kind of do stuff, right? You need, to, you need to evaluate, communicate message of change, create a team. and that. But for some of you, what you need to hear right now is you have to actually try something. So I would say one way to do, and do intentional steps is create dates for things. 
Like actually set dates. Don't just coast and think that somebody in the, like your future self will create the, the date when it works. Like create a gold date. Um, experiment with stuff. So try things. And sometimes experimentation doesn't work right away. Some things that might work just need time. So it's kind of, you have to kind of nuance your situation, but don't be afraid to experiment with things. Um, people, I think it, you change culture sometimes by people knowing that you're part of a community that tries new things, even if they don't work all the time. Right. And, um, and I would say some of your intentional steps can also be some of that communication. You can't just have a communi- communicate a message of change once. You have to continually communicate this. It needs to be something that comes up again and again and again. I've heard somebody say once, a, a community has um, ingested a message once they, can, they know you're going to say it before you say it. They can repeat exactly what you're going to say. Right. And so that might be that might be what you kind of said earlier is our vision and mission statement. It might be just, you know, I, I tell people all the time when I work with my young adults, I have these table leaders and I tell them every week, I was like, guys, when you lead a small group, you are not the sage on the stage. You're the guide on the side. And now it's gotten to the point where I say, guys, you're not the sage on the stage. And then they and say, they I'm, I'm it, and then guide on the sides. Side. Yeah. I think uh, when it comes to these intentional steps, it's I think one of the important things I've learned over the years is that some of those steps, they have to come out of the team. They can't come out of you. Mm. In other words, like this, this is what show, gives evidence of buy-in, that phrase we all like, well, we got to get some buy-in before we make this decision. Well, what is buy-in? Buy-in is when the team that you've built around you to make this change says, well, these are the steps we need to take to get there. They can't all just come from the person who is dreamt up the change. That has to come from this team. And then with that, I think responsibility has, been, has to be given to those people to make those intentional steps happen. In other words, divide and conquer, right, uh, with what's required to make this change. You can't make the change by yourself, and you can't do everything that's required to make the change uh, by yourself, right? That goes without saying that the team around you needs to help create these steps to to uh, to to accomplish in order to see this change happen. And I think too many people are looking for a team to give like a stamp, like, well, here's what we're going to do and here's the change we're going to make. And then they look back, you know, a month, two months, a year down the road, and they say, really, you didn't want a team of people to help you? You, yeah. wanted, you wanted people just to kind of do what just kind of raise you up as like, you know, the, the, the great thinker that you are, the great visionary who made this change. And that may be unfair because I'm sure there's a lot of sort of room in the middle of that to, to find yourself. But the team, most of the time that you develop that's collaborative, wants to do the work with you. Uh, they don't want to just be told, these are the things we're going to do, now go and do them. And I understand there's a time for that. And there's, you know, you know, in various roles that I've had in churches, there have been times where, you know, we've we've just had to make some almost immediate change. And in order to do that, we've had to just go make take the take the action steps or the intentional steps. So anyway, I, I, all that to say is I think, you know, if you're going to do the hard work of evaluating culture, you're going to do the hard work of communicating the message, you're going to do the hard work of building a team, and you're going to make sure that the steps are in place and let it, let the team empower the team around you to, to, to see those steps come to a realization of fruition, you have to circle back and say, what kind of change have we actually made? So related to the 915 worship service change that we've made at our church, Chris, what would you say, looking back on it now, it's been over a year, hasn't it, yep. I think? Well, Look, 
No, six months. Six months. Well, now, in the last six months, what have you seen that has worked or not worked? And then, you know, related to the intentional steps that you took and, and, and has the culture actually changed? I think we do some listening groups to do that. And uh, we just can look at data and attendance. You know, one thing that's really cool for us is when we combine these services, looking at the same time last year, we had, uh, we're 20% up now in the service versus the, you know, the, the, the services alone added up uh, last year. And part of that is we have this new building too, but 20%, that's pretty good. And so that's one way of looking at it, right, is to analyze. But I think a lot of places, they, you know, we don't like looking at the numbers or comparing because sometimes they're not favorable. But you have to be kind of relentless with comparing. And that's not about, you know, that's not, again, not your value. A lot of people, I think, skirt this last step, which is kind of 4B or, you know, step five or whatever. I like this quote from Elon Musk because um, this is a guy who started PayPal, SpaceX, and Tesla, right? This is a guy who's transforming entire industries. If there's one person who knows about changing culture, he it's, it's this guy. And so he has this quote. He says, I think it's very important to have a feedback loop where you're constantly thinking about what you've done and how you could be doing it better. I think that's the single best piece of advice. Constantly think about how you could be doing things better and questioning yourself. And I think that's absolutely true is what ends up happening is even when we make changes, they're exhausting and we kind of lose momentum. It goes back to that book you were mentioning too. I think one of the steps, I think I deleted it here, but it reminded me of something like keep uh, momentum going. Yeah. You just something yeah, like that. sustain the change, sustain change. Yeah. And that if you get cozy again, what's going to happen is all that work that you've just put in all these steps, they kind of build on each other. And so it's more of a snowball. Like if you get that snowball rolling down the hill and then you stop the snowball, <laughs> it's going to be harder to start it up again. I want to finish with this thought because I think there's a lot of people out there who are probably thinking, uh, I'd like to make some change. And if I were to go about it, then I'd want to follow these four steps. There's lots of great straight, uh, lots of great change frameworks out there. Just Google it, but there's all kinds of steps. And these are the four we're offering today, but I would just end with this. If you're not willing or at least prepared to enter into it for the long haul, don't try to make the change. I think what happens a lot of times is we start to make change. We don't get our way or it doesn't work out or uh, it fails because things don't always work, right? It fails and we move on to another place, so to speak, either mentally or physically or both, right? We check out. And so if so, my last piece of advice in terms of evaluating culture, communicating message, creating a team, building these intentional steps and then evaluating and looking back on whether it's worked or not, I, I would say just don't go about this. It, it's almost in, in, in response to what you read from Bonhoeffer earlier about this community might just be best served by just being the community that it is. So if I'm not really willing to make this change and if I don't really want to stick to it, it's probably better to not disrupt everything and leave in the middle of the disruption. Uh, so anyways, and I've, I've done that personally. You know, that's why I'm saying that. Like, I've left churches for other churches in the middle of change efforts. And people that I've built this team around me to make this change, and they look at you and you go, I thought we were doing this together. I thought, I thought there was a... Now, it can't be about a personality, right? It has to be about the lay leaders and the volunteer teams. But the reality is when you bail on people, it's literally that, bailing on people. And so I've learned over the years, like, I need to finish things or at least come to a conclusion because some things you set out to change don't get changed because it didn't work. 
but at least you know you're not leaving halfway in the middle of something and leaving a bunch of people going, okay, so now who is our community? We're more messed up than ever because we're like unfinished. We're undone. So anyway, that that would just be my last advice. Um, That's what, great. What you sometimes, have? sometimes you, no matter how hard you work at it, change doesn't happen quite like you want, and and I think that is actually true of all change. Like even when you get great results, they're not quite what you expected, right? And so you have to manage that that space between of you. There's this vision of what could be and what is is currently. And that's good, but if you let too much of that go, if you they drift apart, well, you're gonna you're gonna be real frustrated, and then you're gonna quit and you're gonna burn out. But I'll leave. I have one more quote for you. This is again from Bonhoeffer: the the community of faith does not need brilliant personalities, but faithful servants of Jesus and one another. Amen, guys. You don't. You can be the least talented leader out there on the planet, but if you are a faithful servant, you're gonna see results. Yeah, I think that's true. And sometimes we won't even, we won't see the results, but the results will happen um, around us. Like we may not always be in the place to see the fruit that happens years after the hard work has been done. So, well, you can interact with Chris and I at thinkburlap.com. We have plenty of resources there, both uh, in blog posts and other podcasts, and then obviously some resources in our store that we think can help you. We offer all kinds of training. We have 10 different workshops. So if, if Chris and I can be a help to you or any of the other members of our Burlap team can be a help to, to you and in processing this, this kind of conversation as it relates to helping churches reach and engage millennials and Generation Z, don't uh, hesitate to reach out to us. Thanks for listening, and until next time, uh, have a great have a great day.